Hello there. Welcome to Faith in Capital. I'm your host, Chase Tibbs. Real quick, uh, I just wanted to say thanks to everyone who's reached out on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook just to say hey. I love hearing from listeners, but also genuinely enjoy meeting and talking with people who are mutually interested in all things faith, labor, class, and capitalism. Um, Also, if you think a particular episode might intrigue a friend, please, by all means, send them a link. Um, I mean, if you know like any other Christian who is not in the top 1%, that is who this podcast is for. So uh, yeah, that'd be great. All right, enough of that. Um, We're continuing our Blind Faith series today because there are a few more basic common assumptions and naturalized beliefs of the capitalist worldview that I thought we could reflect upon. I don't know, maybe like three or four more. We'll see. And this episode's unquestionable, indisputable fact of life is this. Workers are paid for all their work. Employees receive back a wage proportionate to what they put in. Workers are not paid for some of their work minutes, some of their work hours, some of their work days. Employees are paid for every single second of their time on the job. Okay, so I want to start by briefly articulating the capitalist way of thinking about wages and incomes. Because in order to dialogue with this popular perspective, we need to be able to articulate it as a capitalist would. We need to be able to understand how the majority of people living in our capitalist society understands it. Then we'll offer a very different understanding of incomes and wages. One not one that not only disagrees with the capitalist perspective, but problematizes it. And in the end, we'll uh, spend some time in the book of Isaiah. Oh my my. Talking about something the authors were pretty mad about. Oppression of workers. Let's take it from the top. According to neoclassical economic theory, the particular economic theory which has dominated U.S. economics since the mid-70s, Whether a person receives an income by way of selling their labor for a paycheck or by purchasing other people's labor, whether someone receives rent from renting out land or a reward for owning technology or materials used in processes of production, is ultimately a matter of individual preference, a matter of individual choice. The fundamental reason why some people are employees and others are employers is ultimately the result of particular individuals' essential human nature. It's what they themselves choose, and it's because of who they are. And so, in the market, you got one person looking for, looking to uh, make an income by selling their labor, and another looking to make an income by buying other people's labor. And the two individuals come together and freely make a deal. The employer says, I'll pay you X number of dollars for every hour you work. And I'll expect you to work, say, like 50 hours a week. Or we'll pay you X number of dollars a year, given that you work this many hours a week. It's the same thing, salary wages. These will be your wages. And the laborer, thought to be absolutely free to accept or deny, says, yeah, I'll take it. Now this worker, according to all capitalist economic theories, not just uh, neoclassical, is not agreeing to be paid for part of their work. The contract made says they will be paid for every single minute on the job, not a second less, and of course not a second more. This is to say that 
when the worker contributes by laboring, they will receive a proportionate return on or a reward for their contribution. If the worker chooses not to work and chooses leisure over income, say, they, uh, they won't receive anything in return because they chose not to contribute. So if someone chooses to work only 50 hours a week, right, only 50 hours a week, but there are 168 hours in every week, they are choosing income for 50 hours and leisure for 118 hours. Make sense? Individuals only receive returns on their contributions. In the employee's case, the selling of their labor. And the same goes for the capitalist, right, the employer. While And while there are several different kinds of capitalists, I want us to focus on the employer capitalist, the capitalist who purchases the labor power of others. An employer receives no returns, no rewards from what the employer does not themselves contribute. Whether or not they receive an income is determined by whether they are willing to invest and contribute. Their contribution being in the purchasing of labor, land, technology, and raw materials needed for the production of new commodities. Essentially, both employees and employers receive incomes and wages based on their choice to individually contribute. No more, and certainly no less. For example, the hourly wage rate of a $40,000 annual salary for an employee working 40 hours a week would roughly be like $19 an hour. As the CEO of General Motors, the hourly wage rate of Mary Barra's $21.96 million package in 2018 was $10,558 an hour. $10,558 an hour. Yes, that's right. Barra was such a hard worker last year that she made in a single hour what many U.S. Americans make in four months, which means in three hours, right? In three hours, she made what many make in an entire year. That was the same year GM closed, I think it was like three or four production sites, some 14,000 jobs, all in the name of technological innovation. And just for kicks and giggles, I did the math. A person making $19 an hour, working 40 hours a week, 52 weeks a year, no time off, would have to work 549,000 years to make what Barra made in a single year. Let me say that one more time. A full-time worker receiving $19 an hour would need to work 549,000 years to make what the CEO of General Motors made in 2018 alone. But remember, wages or incomes, according to the capitalist perspective, are equivalent to what employees and employers contribute themselves. No more and no less. This is an unquestionable assumption of the capitalist worldview. Workers are paid for all, not some, not part, all their work. Those who are willing to contribute more, those who individually choose income over leisure, will be rewarded more than those who do not. It's simple math tied to our mysterious individual wants and desires. Some people want to employ, others want to be employed. Now... One thing that I want us to see here is that 
While the two seriously disagree on human nature and the role of the state, for both Keynesian-leaning structuralist capitalists and uh, neoclassical-leaning private capitalists, capitalism is inherently non-exploitative. According to all capitalist theories, there is no such thing as legal exploitation in a capitalist economy. Sure, there's some uh, illegal shady stuff where people are exploited, but in the legal free market, people receive back a return proportionate to what they put in. Individual incomes are tied to what individuals give. Why are the rich as wealthy as they are? Because they choose to be. Why are the poor as impoverished as they are? Because they choose to be. The $21.96 million in 2018 that Barra received was proportionate to what she contributed, certainly not a dollar more. And the auto workers, making some $20 an hour, year after year, received an income proportionate to what they themselves invested, not a dollar less. It is the purest state of fairness. Anything else would be unjust. So when the workers ask for more money, when workers have historically unionized and demanded better working conditions and higher wages, it's been said that they are trying to take money that doesn't belong to them. They are trying to rob their employers. All right, but you know what? Incomes and wages as rewards or returns on contributions and investments is not the only way to think about wages. In fact, some people believe that surplus-producing employees are not paid for all their work. Instead, they're paid for only a portion of their labor time. They are underpaid and receive only some of the fruits of their labor. Essentially, surplus-producing employees put in more than they get back and have no real say in the matter. Let's flesh this out a little bit. Karl Marx was not the first person to come to this conclusion, the conclusion that workers produce more than what they receive in return, but he was one of the first to analyze the relationship between employers and employees in this way to such a great depth. And <clears throat> I know that name, Marx, carries a lot of baggage in our capitalist society. But today, I just want to focus on his claim that employees are underpaid, right? That's the claim. That's all he's saying. Employees are underpaid. Marx, like many of his fellow European contemporaries, was very much interested in realizing liberty, equality, fraternity, and democracy. But rather than delivering societies to liberty, equality, fraternity, and democracy, Marx gradually came to see capitalism as a system that continually failed to realize those ideals. In fact, for the majority of people, undermined the very ideals that he and his contemporaries were taken by. And he located one of the fundamental problems to be the class structure of capitalist businesses and enterprises, the capitalist way of organizing the production, appropriation, and distribution of surplus, right, the extra goods and services that are produced. Instead of seeing employees and employers as simply making returns and in incomes based on their individual contributions, Marx observed that employers seem to make incomes not from their own contributions, but from the collective contributions of their surplus-producing employees. The incomes of employers are not the fruits of their own labor, 
but rather are the fruits of other people's collective labor, which means that employees are not paid for all their work. Instead, workers exchange the rights to all of their newly produced fruits for a wage that is only a portion of what they actually produce, while the employer keeps the rest for themselves. Maybe a little bit, maybe a lot. Okay, but how does he come to this conclusion? First, some workers are what Marx refers to as productive laborers. These are the workers that directly labor with materials or technology, whether it's machines or food or whatever, what have you, to produce new goods and services that are then sold on the market for new value. And while unproductive or enabling laborers are also important to this process, we'll talk about them another time. I want to stick with workers who directly produce goods or services. The migrant workers in, Cal in the California vineyards and plantations, working the vines and the soil, are surplus workers. The construction workers on I-70 in the Midwest, working with machinery, are surplus workers. The pizza makers at Domino's, the assembly line auto workers at Tesla, the uh, mechanics who work on your car down the street, the nurses and doctors who use technology to perform procedures, the workers at Foxconn who made your phone. These are all producers of surplus value that is realized through exchanges on the market. And all the newly produced value immediately belongs to the employers. But... The employers or the board of directors are not the producers of surplus. Rather, they appropriate the collectively produced surplus. They legally take it all and distribute it however they want. The employer alone, without the employees, decides how the collectively produced surplus will be distributed. Now, if all the surplus went to... One, replenishing the materials used in production, right? Paying back the owner of the raw materials used, um, which in this case is the employer. And two, paying those who actually directly produced the goods and services. Then the capitalist wouldn't take anything above what they contributed because all they've contributed are the materials. But that's not what happens in capitalist businesses. Employers replenish the materials, but then they pay the employee a wage value less than what they produced so that they can keep the surplus, right? The extra revenue. While that surplus is used in a variety of ways, that's where employer profits come from. That's how a $21.96 million CEO compensation package becomes possible. And to make this clear, Marx splits the labor time of the productive employee into two and says that a portion of the working day goes to making their wages. He calls this the necessary labor time. While a second portion of their working day goes to producing the surplus. He calls this surplus labor. During one part of the working day, employees produce the sum total of their own wages, right? Their paychecks while the other part of the day, they produce the incomes of those who've purchased their labor, which is to say they produce more than what they receive back. How do productive workers make their incomes? Their own collective work. Where do the incomes of employers come from? Other people's collective work. 
Marx showed that, in the same way the class structures of feudalism and slavery separated those who produce the surplus from those who appropriate and distribute the surplus, capitalism, too, excludes the workers from democratically appropriating and distributing the fruits of their own direct labor. The capitalist class structure is systemically authoritarian and anti-democratic. Instead of having serfs and lords or slaves and masters, we have employees and employers, workers and capitalists. And it's this division within the class structure, this division within the process of producing, appropriating, and distributing surpluses that Marx believed was simply legalized employer theft, what he and many after him called exploitation. When we analyze other class structures of other times and other societies, we usually equate taking the fruits of other people's labor with exploitation. And if employers take the fruits of employee labor, why wouldn't we see the capitalist employer-employee relations as structurally exploitative as well? Think about it. Why do we say that Africans and African Americans in the U.S. were exploited as slaves? What constituted their being exploited? Well, one person or group, right, the white masters, put to work another group, the black slaves, and they exclusively owned all the fruits produced by the slaves' labor. And the masters took a portion of the newly produced surplus and clothed, fed, and sheltered the slaves so that they could get up the next day, the next week, the next month, and keep producing more and more surplus. But the slaves produced more than what they received back, right? They produced more than what was given to them by their masters. Which means the white masters were living off the labor of their black slaves. They were taking a portion of a surplus produced by someone other than themselves. And that gap, the gap between what the slaves themselves produced in total and what they actually received back, is the rate of exploitation. That's what makes slavery exploitative. Seen in this light, workers, too, are not paid for all their work. In fact, a portion of every working day or every working week produces value not for their paychecks, but for their bosses' paychecks. The board of directors and major shareholders, they take the fruits of other people's labor. Workers are not paid for all their work. Because to produce surplus for a wage is to be exploited. To hierarchically take the fruit of another's labor is to exploit. Okay, so as Christians though, right, how might we think of this theologically? Well, for one, exploitation ain't new. So there is an enormous amount of resources within our expansive religious tradition that deals with exploitation. Some for it, some against it. And personally, I think it's really important we acknowledge that there is no pure, essential Christianity, no one true Christianity that is perfectly just and good. Christianity has, perhaps predominantly, reinforced violent, exclusive, and oppressive structures and cultural norms. In the scriptures and in one's particular Christian tradition, anyone could easily find tons of examples of support for exploitation. But the faith has not only served the interests of the beneficiaries of domination and exploitation. 
Christianity has also been a source of inspiration for liberation and empowerment for oppressed and resisting peoples, a co-conspirator in the resistance to the way things are as imposed upon us through political and cultural hegemony. And one passage that jumped to my mind that could be heard as aligned with those who confront and critique normalized exploitative powers comes from the book of Isaiah, and it's in chapter 58. And just to hear a little bit of it, I'm going to read verses 3 through 7. And remember, this is Isaiah who is said to be the mouth of the Lord. But first, these worshipers, he quote, he, he, uh, he's kind of like quoting, ask, Why do we fast, but you do not see? Why humble ourselves, but you do not notice? And then the, the prophet, as the mouth of the Lord, replies, Look, you serve your own interest on your fast day and oppress all your workers. Look, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to strike with a wicked fist. Such fasting as you do today will not make your voice heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day to humble oneself? Is it to bow down the head like a bulrush and to lie in a sackcloth in ashes? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover them and not to hide yourself from your own kin? All right. So apparently some people are fasting and they're worshiping this God and they want to know why God isn't interested in their fasts and their worship. And the prophet Isaiah, who has said, again, to be the mouth of the Lord, says, listen, you can't oppress people for your own gain. You can't violate the well-being of workers, the displaced and the desperate, and hope that God will be with you. In fact, Isaiah says God is working against the oppression of workers, and those whose fasts are pleasing to God are those who are working against the bonds of injustice, are resisting and transforming oppressive systems, and are undoing the ties of heavy yokes even smashing and breaking these yokes. Apparently, this author believed that to oppress others was to work against the desires of God. But the oppressive fasters have normalized and naturalized their way of living. They're confused. Why do we fast, but you do not see, right? Why humble ourselves, but you don't even notice us? And Isaiah reveals to them that they are trying to worship two very different gods who hold two very different desires for the people. The first God is a God who encourages the oppression of workers, who applauds self-interested gain at the expense of others. This God tolerates the reality, the existence of hunger, homelessness, and poverty. But this other God, the God of the prophet Isaiah, is a God who confronts the oppression of workers, who refuses to tolerate it. And as chapter 61 eventually tells us, this God is actually a liberator and a restorer, a God who works from the bottom up. And while the author isn't explicitly discussing the production, appropriation, and distribution of surplus, 
He isn't solely talking about exploitation as the hierarchical reaping of fruits sown by other people's labor. We know that these holy worshipers and pious fasters are working other people for their own benefit, to which we can assume they are in some way or another taking the goods and services produced by the workers and using the rewards as they please. Might we take this scriptural rejection of oppression and this prophetic repudiation of apathy towards suffering and extend it to explicitly reject any and all kinds of exploitation, even capitalist exploitation? Employees must come to the understanding that, contrary to the common wisdom of our capitalist society, not only are workers excluded from the important decision-making, like whether GM should have laid off 14,000 workers and simultaneously given the CEO $20 million or not, workers are also not paid for all their work. To labor for wages under a capitalist business is to be exploited. And a system that exploits workers is a system in opposition to the desires of Isaiah's God, the same prophet Jesus quotes when he inaugurates his ministry in the Gospel according to Luke. A society structured around the exploitation of the many, or even the exploitation of a few, is a society whose fasts make war against the God of liberation and restoration.